for those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm Philip Sheepers. I'm vice principal at the uh, RTC. And um, it seems I make it about here once a year. So I'm about to say, um, uh, as I said previously, but you may not remember what I said previously. So maybe it's better to not do a, a series with one-year intervals. So um, um, I will just... Uh, uh, speak today from uh, the passage that we, we read, Acts 20. Um, there's a few things that I, I just want to tie down in terms of the background of this passage before we um, get into it. Um, the first thing that we need to note is that Paul uh, spent significant amount of ministry time and energy and capital in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, a very, very uh, important uh, religious and cultural and economic center of that part of the world. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, uh, the temple of Artemis, or Diana as the Romans called her, uh, was in Ephesus. And Paul had quite a run-in with uh, the uh, personnel of that temple. So he engaged there in... Uh, a ministry that we can only really describe, uh, describe as church planting, uh, establishing a, uh, a thriving church. Spent, uh, according to scholars, about two to three years uh, in that uh, city. So in the, the, the book of Acts, it's often the case that things are described uh, almost in passing that actually took uh, quite a while when you uh, marked it on the calendar. Uh, and, and this is the case with Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. Uh, Paul did not stay in Ephesus. He uh, moved from there on his many missionary journeys, as you will probably see them portrayed uh, in the back of your Bibles on maps. Uh, but where we pick up the story now, Paul is winding his way back to Jerusalem uh, to go and take a collection for the, the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and to encourage the brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. Paul knows uh, that this is his final journey through these parts. So uh, this whole sequence has a, a, the kind of a feel of a farewell tour uh, about it. And, and that's perhaps nowhere more evident than in, uh, in this section here. Um, if, if you just read a few verses uh, previous, you will see that, that Luke describes something really peculiar. It, it's Paul going back towards Jerusalem. And then there's that phrase, he did not want to spend time in Asia. Um, so he kind of sails past Ephesus. Um, and that, that must have tugged at his heartstrings. You know, this is a place where he spent significant time in ministry, where he had deep connections, as we, we see in the letter uh, to the Ephesians. And he goes straight past. That's a very, very enigmatic phrase we have there. Why did Paul not want to spend time in uh, Ephesus? It's not because he was in a hurry. I'll, I'll explain this in a, in a moment. But probably, if I can conjecture a, uh, a proposal, uh, that he didn't want to be pulled back into the regular patterns of, of ministry because he knew that at this stage, God had something very, very different uh, for him. So he does something really peculiar. He sails past, a little bit down the coast, and he stops at a place called Miletus. And he sends 
for the elders. This is where we pick up the story in uh, verse 17 of chapter 20. Um, and this is one of those cases where, where Luke kind of truncates uh, a very long series of events into a, a phrase or a sentence or, or two. This is how we have it in the book of Acts. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And then verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them. And we kind of have this idea. He stopped at the port. He sent um, a message. And a few hours later, you know, the elders turn up at his doorstep. This whole sequence actually took uh, probably f uh, six to eight days. Uh, we're talking about a distance of 90 kilometers to go there, uh, fetch the elders, you know, maybe get them to leave what they're doing, and then come back to see Paul in Miletus. So, so Paul, therefore, extracts the elders from their context of ministry. They kind of trudge across the peninsula, or maybe they were quite young and fit. They, they walk very quickly, and they appear before uh, Paul. So Paul, in essence, you know, engineered some kind of compromise here. Uh, they don't want to spend time in Ephesus because they didn't want to be pulled into the, uh, the patterns of ministry there. He had a, a different mission, but he didn't want to leave them, on the other hand, without a word to instruct them. So he, he gets the elders to come and uh, speak to him. And this is where we pick up the story. Before we uh, go a bit deeper into it. Let's just, let's just ask God's blessing as we meditate on his word. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that when we read from your word, it is much more than uh, words on a page, much more than letters flashed onto a screen. It is your living, active, infallible word to us. And we want to approach your word, therefore, with uh, a deep sense of humility but also with expectation that it is your word, your word that is living and active, your word that can instruct us into what it means to be your people and to live in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that as we now meditate on your word, that you will open it up for us, that you will help us to understand, and, Lord, also that you will give us the ability to be obedient to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as human beings, we have an interesting fascination with last words. The last words of the great and the good uh, kind of enacts a, a great pull on people. You know, great collections have been published of what people said just before they left this planet. Uh, some of these words can be very profound. Some can be angry, kind of shaking your fist uh, at the universe. Some despairing. And some, it has to be admitted, can be downright funny. The following is true. The last words of General John Sedgwick, a Union general in the American Civil War, was, as he peered above the parapet, ah, oh, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And you know what happened next. Um, so this passage is something that we can kind of slot into this category. Last words. Now, you might say to me, why? You know, Paul, uh, if you know the book of Acts, will probably live uh, for, depending on how you count this, uh, you know, at least five years after this. So this is not in any way uh, Paul's literal last words. So why last words? Well, simply because Paul clearly senses that he is stepping out of his normal pattern of ministry. 
Up to now, if you look on a map, you will see that Paul went here, there, and everywhere, and that he was able to minister in a relatively unconstrained way, give or take a few imprisonments, obviously. But this passage is different. Paul knows that he is not going to see these people again. He embarks now on a very, very different phase of his life uh, and his ministry. And as such, this speech uh, can be slotted into a well-known biblical genre, biblical category, that of the farewell address. We find many of these uh, scattered throughout the Bible. Uh, Just very quickly, Jacob gives a lengthy legacy to his sons in Genesis 49. Both Joshua and Moses uh, greets the people, gives a farewell address. Samuel does the same. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 22, verses 14 to 38, and in an extended fashion in John 13 to 17, takes leave of his disciples. And when we look at these farewell addresses, we see that there are common characteristics and features that uh, are present in most all of them. Firstly, we see the assembling of the family or the followers, Jesus gathering his disciples, in this case, Paul sending for the elders. When you're sent for in this way, you probably know something important is about to happen. Something important will be said. You know, you're not uh, walking for three days simply to talk about the weather. You know, Paul is obviously going to impart something really important here. Then the note that the speaker will soon depart or die. Paul makes this very, very clear. I know that none of you will ever see me again. That's quite explicit. You, you can't be clearer than this. I am taking my leave of you from this moment on. No one will lay eye, none of you will lay eyes on me again. Then often an appeal on the personal example of the speaker, and then, most importantly, exhortations as far as desired behavior or beliefs are concerned. And then, also, very often, a prediction of coming times of trial and difficulty. So God, in his wisdom, included in Scripture many occasions like this. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, even Jesus himself uh, did this for uh, the people around them. And Paul now comes into this category, in a sense, and adds his own farewell address. And why focus on this one, then? Well, I think we we need to understand a little bit about Ephesus and about ministry there. Uh, It was never easy. You know, Paul provoked a riot, as so often happened during his ministry, Um, by those who wanted to see the worship of Artemis continuing in an unconstrained way. There were also many of the Jewish leaders in this city who made life incredibly difficult for them. So ministry in Ephesus took place in a decidedly hostile environment. And so as the elders came to Paul, as they heard his words, as they turned around, they knew They were going back into a situation where what they had to say was not universally welcomed, was in fact in many cases actively opposed, and as Paul himself experienced, even violently opposed. 
So Paul gathers these people, the elders, representing, in, in a sense, the whole body of the church. He charges them with continuing his ministry while fully recognizing that this is not going to be easy. That it's, in fact, going to be very, very difficult in some instances. And that's why I think this is a passage that we, in our culture, should take careful notice of. Of course, we probably, in the vast majority of cases in the West, don't face the kind of physical constraints that uh, the Ephesian elders had to deal with. But we also live and minister in situations where our message is often very, very strongly opposed So, by paying attention to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders, about to go back into a hostile situation, we can apply it also to our own lives and ministries in this society. It has to be acknowledged, of course, that Paul speaks from a very specific position, namely that of an apostle, uh, addressing the, the Ephesian elders. But that does not mean that what he says is not you know, applicable to us. Paul himself is very, very clear that he is, in a sense, handing over the baton of ministry, that the apostolic ministry is now handed to these elders who need to look to his example in terms of how they live and work in this world. So, this is obviously a very, very rich text, and, and I could keep you here for a while as we go through all of that. So I'm not going to go through all of the um, theological implications of the, the things that Paul is saying. I want to focus very, very strongly on what he charges them with in terms of their own beliefs and behaviors uh, in this hostile environment. Let me just give you a little bit of an overview of what we're dealing with here. This is uh, 17 to 24. Uh, Paul speaks about his ministry, and the emphasis is on what will happen in future both with him and with the elders. He also speaks in verses 25 to 31, about his own personal example, uh, and he warns against those who would be ready to distort the word. And then in verses 30 to 35, we see this really touching farewell scene. You can almost imagine it happening there on the way to the ship. Lots of tears um, as Paul commits these elders to the grace of God. So, as these elders then turn around, what were they thinking? What, what, what is the core of the things that Paul committed uh, to them? It would obviously be presumptuous to say that, you know, I know exactly you know, what lived in the minds of these elders. Uh, but I think we can take a few very, very strong educated guesses by looking at the, the core of what Paul said to them. Firstly, Paul emphasized very, very strongly that our lives matter when we seek the glory of God and when we seek to minister the gospel in our societies. Our lives matter. Recently, I attended a a presentation by McCrindle Research, uh, a group uh, that does all sorts of research, but also into faith and belief uh, in Australia. And McCrindle Um, looked at uh, people's attitudes towards Christianity and surveyed people who 
said that they would at least be open to considering the claims of the, the Christian faith. This can be found in the most recent Australian Communities Report. And then ask the question, what keeps you from pursuing this investigation of Christianity? In other words, what, in terms of your own attitudes towards the Christian faith, act as a belief blocker? You know, keeps you from taking that next step, you know, asking the, 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 the deep question. And the, the research researcher said that he was quite uh, astounded by the results because he kind of thought that the answers would all be kind of theological. That people struggle with belief in miracles, the virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture, um, the kind of thing that we often deal with when we uh, do apologetics, you know, the, uh, the rational defense of the Christian faith. In fact, these factors rated fairly uh, insignificantly in, in terms of some, some of the other factors. I mean, that they were there, but there was one factor that for 53% of respondents acted as a belief blocker. 53%. So more than half of people willing to consider the Christian faith don't do it because of this factor. And it is simply this, the clerical child abuse scandal that we, we all saw play out in the, um, the, the, the recent Royal Commission. In other words, the perception of a disconnect between lives and teaching. In other words, uh, a group of people uh, proclaiming one set of beliefs and then acting in an entirely different way. Now, we can obviously try and justify ourselves and try and distance ourselves and, and so on. That's, that, that may in some cases be quite appropriate or not. But the, the clear implication here is, is that when Australians look at the church, they want to see that we live according to what we profess. I cannot say it in a, in a simpler form than this. Our walk must be consistent with our talk. Otherwise, people simply switch off. And this is a central awareness that shines through almost every sentence that Paul speaks here. Paul clearly recognized that when he ministered in Ephesus, people were watching. They were observing whether he is in fact serious about what he said. And therefore he says in verse 18, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. So Paul was aware, if I can use a very modern term, that he was in fact viewed as a role model. And I think for many of us at this point, we, we, we want to shy away, saying, no, don't look to me, look to Jesus. And, and there's something laudable and right and proper about saying, look to Jesus. But Paul wants to say that it will be easier for people to look to Jesus if they can see him reflected in the way in which we act and in which we speak. And therefore, he did not shy away from this role, even though he was aware of his own weaknesses. Paul did not see himself as some kind of superhuman person. He, in fact, constantly speaks of his weakness and even of the fawn in his flesh that made him weak on a, a number of levels. But still he's able to say in 1 Corinthians 11 that people should imitate him as he imitates Christ. This is obviously a very high standard 
to set, but it is something that we would do very well to take heed of. When we seek to minister the gospel individually and in our communities, our lives are important. How we live, what we say, will act, can act, as a powerful apologetic for the gospel. In other words, pulling people closer to want to consider the gospel. Or it can drive them away and give them an excuse for not believing. So therefore, and this is a hard word, one that I need to hear every day in my own life and that we all need to hear. With true Christian discipleship, there can never be a kind of a double standard that says, do what I teach, but don't do what I do. In fact, Jesus' second longest speech in the New Testament after the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount dealt with this very issue as he took the Pharisees to task in Matthew 23. As people seeking to share the gospel with those around us, especially with those around us who may be bitterly opposed to what we have to say, we should constantly pray in the words of Philippians 1 verse 27 for lives worthy of the gospel. So that's the first thing I think that the Ephesian elders must have taken from what Paul said here. You know how I lived among you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Secondly, just the bare recognition that ministering the gospel can sometimes be really, really hard. And we need to pray for grace to, uh, to stay the course. Paul testified in verse 19 that he was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, and yet he considered, uh, continued to serve the Lord with great humility and also with tears. Um, so, so here again is that moment of vulnerability and weakness shining through. Uh, Paul's not saying, I was all a breeze. I came in, I was opposed, I beat them all. No, there were moments of tears, probably of self-doubt, probably of struggle in the midst of all of these trials. But Paul says he responded with humility. That's a strange word in this context. I would say I responded with dependence or I responded with trust or you know, any other, a, a number of other options we can bring in here. But why humility? Why humility when we are faced with struggles? Paul is not simply saying that he was humble because he didn't have much be proud about. It is rather that humility is the proper stance of the servant to the master. When the servant interacts with the master, you do that with a humble attitude. And by making this statement, speaking of his own humility here, Paul is simply reminding himself, himself and his hearers that he was but a servant in that context. In other words, that the opposition that he dealt with came about because he was serving God. He wasn't there to simply needle people. He wasn't there to blow his own trumpet. He was there because he was a servant. And therefore, humility is the appropriate attitude. This life of servanthood isn't always easy. In fact, Paul explicitly mentioned that it came with tears. But we should always remember in whose name we are ministering. 
by reminding himself that he was but a servant, Paul was able to see the big picture. He did not allow the opposition to defeat him, neither did he lose his cool in the face of opposition by plotting some form of retaliation. He was but a servant, humbly doing what God required of him in that situation. Humility. As servants of the Lord, we will also often come into situations where we perhaps get angry, get discouraged, or ready to pack it all in. Remembering that it is not ultimately all about us, but that we are humble servants of one far greater than us can help us to hang in there. When we look at serving in our hostile culture, when we perhaps face the same kinds of opposition, let us remember we are servants and serve with humility. The third thing that Paul reminds the elders of is that the gospel should be shared far and wide. Verse 20 is a kind of a a summary of what happened in Acts 19, where, where Paul's ministry is described in much greater detail in Ephesus. Um, so Paul says, I'm, this is how I ministered among you. I did not hold anything back, but he preached everything that would be helpful to them. This is, a, again, a kind of an interesting statement. Paul is saying, I gave you everything I could. didn't hold anything back. There's probably a bit of historical background here in the sense that uh, within uh, the context of pagan religion in Asia Minor in, in this period, there was a group of cults known as mystery religions where teachers would, in essence, simply proclaim as much as was necessary to keep the funding and the support going. In other words, kind of just drip-feeding little bits of what they believe to be truth um, so that they can keep their power and prestige going. Paul says gospel ministry should never be like that. We don't hold back. We teach and bring everything that will be helpful, everything possible that will help people grow in Christ-likeness. In other words, the full gospel, in all its glory, its truth, and its staggering implications should be taught uh, in our societies. Paul then goes on to say, he did this in public and from house to house. So Paul spoke in public very often. Um, In many cases, as he ministered in Asia, he made a beeline for the local synagogue Uh, started his uh, ministry there. Often he would speak, as we see in um, Acts 17, in the open air. Um, But in Ephesus, he took this one step further. It uh, tells us that he rented a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, where he would speak on a very regular basis. So Tyrannus literally means tyrant. Um, so not all lecturers, apparently, throughout history were nice people. Let's go figure. Anyway, um, but it, in this lecture hall, we have a record of Paul, in other words, ministering evangelistically, getting up in front of crowds of people 
bringing the gospel, dealing with all questions. I, I can imagine you know, that, that this must be a, uh, a very kind of cut and thrust environment. You know, people coming along, hearing him speak, uh, him responding in different ways. Um, so public evangelistic ministry. He also refers to speaking from house to house. And I don't think it is a stretch to see this as ministry, pastoral ministry, to Christians. Um, Just think of how often throughout his letters Paul would address churches meeting in this house or in that house or in another house. Um, so, So Paul here is probably referring to evangelistic ministry eventually leading to people becoming established in the faith and meeting as believers in homes. And he says, in my ministry in Ephesus, both these things happened. I spoke publicly in the, syna- uh, in the synagogues, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and I also ministered to believers. In other words, this refers to different stages or phases of ministry. Paul is saying that to really be effective in this hostile city, I not only had to bring the word of truth, but I also had to establish people in that word of truth through what we might call pastoral or caring uh, ministry in the context of the home. So we see that in characterizing his ministry, Paul is saying, I didn't hold anything back. Also, this ministry was wide, reaching both to unbelievers and to those who are already believers. And lastly, this ministry included everyone. He goes, I did this, Paul says, to both Jews and Greeks. Um, In other words, in the parlance of the day, the the entire population, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul might have had a great excuse to ignore either group. He might have said, on the one hand, I am Jewish. I stand in the tradition of Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I serve the God of my fathers, and therefore I need to bring the gospel to the Jewish people, and this will be my exclusive focus. And and there's a a tension in the early part of the book of Acts about exactly this, not so much with Paul, but certainly with Peter and the other apostles, um, wanting to keep the the gospel proclamation Jewish, uh, essentially. On the other hand, Paul might also have said, for him personally, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I received a special commission from Christ himself to share the gospel with the Gentile people, i.e. the non-Jewish people. Therefore, I will ignore the uh, the Jewish people and focus on this, what I believe to be my my key task. So Paul could have begged off in in both directions. And yet, he says, I did neither. Uh, I I shared the gospel to both the Jews and the Jews and the Gentiles. This does not contradict his calling as apostle to the Gentiles, but it's rather an admission that both groups, both Jews and Gentiles, need the gospel equally badly, and that it is best to teach both. both. Sorry, to reach both. So, in our context, we can, on the basis of this little section, ask a few questions. Firstly, in terms of our gospel ministry, as, as we seek to minister in a culture where people often struggle to hear what we have to say, 
let's ask ourselves, are we truly working to give people everything they need to grow and progress in their devotion to the Lord? Paul, Paul said, I held nothing back. Are we ministering the gospel in such a way that we really meet people where they are and give them what they need to know, to hear the gospel and to progress in Christ-likeness? Secondly, are our ministries multifaceted in the sense that we concentrate both on sharing the gospel and on the building up of believers? Paul says when he was in Ephesus, he did both publicly and from house to house. Is this true of the way we minister the gospel? And then lastly, in terms of that statement about Jews and Gentiles, are we striving to reach people irrespective of, our, of their backgrounds? It is so easy to reach people who are a little bit like us um, and much more difficult to kind of reach across ethnic, linguistic, socioeconomic, and other boundaries. And yet Paul tells us my ministry included uh, the entire community. So some food for thought there. And then lastly, and this might be the, the most obvious, but also the most profound statement in the entire sermon. Uh, gospel ministry should have the gospel at its center. And you might say, well, duh. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's so, so obvious. But is it really? And I'll qualify this in a moment. So, is it so obvious that the gospel is central? Because in many cases throughout history, it has become easy to substitute the message of the gospel with something else. In other words, add an emphasis, add an action, circumcision perhaps, add a, a group identity, Jewish identity or the Gentile identity, and make that absolutely central. Paul is reminding us here that the gospel should be at the heart. He warns the elders, therefore, that people will come in and distort or attempt to distort like ravening wolves, he says, the core of the gospel. Maybe not necessarily by leading people to an outright rejection of the gospel, but by having them all adding by having them add all sorts of weird and wonderful teachings to the gospel. When you look at the um, the letters of Paul, the letter to the Ephesians, but perhaps more specifically the letter to Colossians, you, you can see this process in action where, where people would kind of still nominally hold on to the gospel, but they've added all sorts of other things, all sorts of accretions to the core of the gospel. So when we say that the gospel should be at the center, I'm really saying that the gospel and the gospel alone must be at the center. Here's how Paul expresses this. Verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks. So we looked at the scope, speaking to both Jews and Greeks, but what did he say to them? What was at the heart of that? that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of 
God's grace. The implication here is very, very clear. Paul wanted to keep what the Lord Jesus did in bringing us the gospel absolutely central. And at the heart of this is a call to repentance. In other words, by speaking about the gospel, Paul is also speaking about a readiness to say the hard things that sometimes must be said in proclaiming the gospel. Yes, we are ministering often in a hostile culture, in a society where people are ready to doubt what we have to say. And then the inclination might be to say, let's make things a little bit easier for us by just taking the, the, the hard edges of our message a little bit. And yet Paul says when he reflects on his ministry that he called people to repentance. That's offensive on so many levels. If you're a believing Jew going to synagogue every week, you would have to say, why repentance? I stand in the the tradition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have nothing to turn back from. If you're Gentile, you might say, what is this new teaching? As it is expressed in Acts 17. This is a strange thing. And Paul might easily have stepped back from this and kept the uh, call for repentance for a little bit later. But yet we see Paul never shrank back from making that call, pointing people to the cross and to the clear implication that the cross demands our repentance. So we must be equally ready not only to keep the gospel at the center, but also to say the hard things associated with the gospel. And again, in our society, that is seen as offensive. For those who believe in God still in our society, their favorite verse in the Bible is not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. But repentance tells us that we can't help ourselves. That we need to declare a bankruptcy as far as our own efforts are concerned and turn to God in faith and repentance. If we leave that bit out of the proclamation of the gospel, I'm afraid we're not proclaiming the gospel anymore. But now, pay close attention. When saying we need to be ready to say hard things, that does not mean that we simply choose to be obnoxious. Paul wanted to make it very, very clear that the gospel will always carry an element of offense in it. He even speaks of the offense of the gospel. So the message might sometimes be offensive, but in terms of my behavior and how I deliver that message, I try to be as personally inoffensive as possible. So there will always be offense, but the offense must be properly located in terms of the call to repentance and not in terms of how I deliver that call to repentance. Does that that make sense? Um, and, and this is clearly, I think, what Paul also tried to emulate in term, or, or, or tried to model in terms of his own sharing of the gospel. So, the Ephesian elders turn around. They've heard lots of very, very important things. We are going to leave that door and also go into society where we 
need to minister the gospel, often in settings where people are at least indifferent and sometimes actively hostile to what we're saying. So I believe this passage teaches us this morning a few things. And this is just to, to recap and finish. The way in which we live has powerful evangelistic implications. Firstly, you know how I lived among you. That is not to set up some new legalistic standard as to you know, trying to please God through our behavior in terms of gaining salvation. It is simply a simple fact that through the way in which we live, we either point people to the cross or away from it. Secondly, just this basic reminder that sharing the gospel can sometimes be really hard. For Paul, it meant tears. His response, that word, humility. I remember that as I go about these things, that is not about me. I'm serving one far greater than I am. Thirdly, our sharing of the gospel should be open, multifaceted, and inclusive. That's quite a mouthful. Open in terms of giving people everything that they need to respond. Multifaceted in terms of sharing the gospel, but also ministering and building up believers. And inclusive in terms of reaching everyone that God uh, sends across our path, both Jews and Greeks, Paul said. In our culture, we can probably expand that list quite significantly. And then lastly, gospel ministry should always have the gospel at its center. It's not about us. It's not about building our church. It's not about um, whatever other motivation we can have in here. It is about calling people to repentance, recognizing that this is a hard thing for many people to accept, and therefore to place the offense in the cross itself and not in my methods. I'm sure most of us would respond to this as Paul did in another place by asking, who is equal to such a thing? You know, who can do this? And, and I, I guess if I was one of those elders walking back to Ephesus, I, I may, may have had the same reaction. It's a great comfort to me that even Paul himself found many of the things mentioned above to be hard going, hence the tears. But here's the comforting thing, and I leave you with that. If we engage in true gospel ministry, we are never on our own. God's Spirit will guide us and will carry us through. The challenge, of course, is to cling to him and his promises with all of our might. And may he himself enable us to do so as we go out to change the world in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially that you <coughs> inspired Luke these uh, statements from Paul as he takes his leave of the Ephesian elders. We can learn so much of what it means to minister in this world from just paying attention to these words. Lord, and I pray that as we think about these things and continue to think about them throughout this week, that you will enable us to respond appropriately, i.e. by being obedient to your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, look at these words to believe them and to also apply them to our lives. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that the values that uh, Paul uh, so clearly shone forth in this passage, the truths will be part of the fiber of one hope. Lord, that in 
clinging to the gospel and in sharing it far and wide, Lord, they would be, they would be used powerfully by you for the extension of the kingdom and for the glorification of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.